Luther, Martin Luther, you've heard of him. Um, he said something or wrote something rather, rather interesting about the book of Psalms, which is called the Psalter. We t- we, that's, that's another term for the Psalms. So, and there's a word in here, I just get, before we get there, and I'm, we're gonna, you've got the slides, right? You're ready to go with that one? Okay, so when we get to that word, just ignore it. You'll know it when you see it, okay? Um, the Psalter ought to be a pres- precious and beloved book, if for no other reason than this. It promises Christ's death and resurrection so clearly and pictures his kingdom and the condition and nature of all Christendom that it might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. It is really a fine Incaridian or handbook. In fact, I have a notion that the Holy Spirit wanted to take the trouble himself to compile a short Bible and book of examples of all Christendom for all saints so that anyone who could not read the whole Bible would here have anyway almost an entire summary of it comprised in one little book. Martin Luther had some good things to say, didn't he? Yeah. Um, Psalms is really truly a Bible within the Bible. I think Luther nailed that. It is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Of all the Old Testament books, it is the most quoted of them all. Uh, The authors of Psalms span a period of, you want to take just in your mind a guess of what the period of time might be between the earliest and latest of the authors of the Psalms. About a thousand years. Give or take. You're talking about Moses in the case of one of the Psalms. That that's puts you back in the 1400-something B.C. range. And there are clearly what we would call post-exilic, meaning after the exile, Psalms that make up the book of Psalms as well. So that, and that could have gone all the way up into the 400s B.C. So yeah, about a, about a thousand years in between. We have before us a book, and I don't want us to lose this, as we, you know, you know how I am, I'm sorry, it, when we interpret the Bible, when we do our work, it, maybe it can get a little academic at times, we try not to make it too much so, but you know, you start digging in and, and, and sometimes you lose the beauty of the, of the language. It is so beautiful, it is a hymn book for the church, it, it, it is worship, it is wisdom and poetry, absolutely it is poetry, it is instruction. Um, in it, you can find every human emotion expressed, pretty much. Like you have just the high level of elation, ecstasy, you might say, that you feel as, as you worship God. The, the bigger sense that we get of God's greatness and our great need for Him and how He satisfies, that's just huge, right? And then you go all the way down into the depths where you question why, why is God letting bad things happen to good people? Why is there this, this problem of evil? Why when I pray and I ask God for a specific thing, does he not just give it to me right away? Why, why does God withhold? So all, all of that is caught up in the Psalms. And, and I'll piggyback here on Garrett's sermon last week where we talk about Christ being the central message of the Scriptures. It's very much that way in the book of Psalms. And Luther saw that, didn't he? And we will see that as we work our way through this. But there is a trajectory throughout the Psalms. I don't want to dump all the background on you today because there's, there's a lot of back. I could just like I could have done a whole sermon just on back background to the Psalms, and that might have been interesting to two of you. But um, I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to. I'm going to give it to you in little bite-sized morsels as we go along, and I'll probably repeat it quite a bit. 
Um, but if you're really into numbers, uh, in gen- how many love numbers more than words? Are there any of those? Okay, all right. Well, okay, so here's some numbers. To, there are five books in the book of Psalms. Did you know that? It's actually stated there in your English Bible. It'll say, you know, book one, book two, all the way through five. It'll go in that order, strangely enough. And, uh, and the first book um, has 41 chapters. You're, this is going to be like your high school locker combination when we're done. So for, the first book has 41. The second book has 31. That has a nice ring to it, 41, 31. And then the next two both have 17. So it's 41, 31, 17, 17. And then just take 150 to subtract that, and you'll know what the last book has. 44. It's 44. 41, 31, 17, 17, 44. We'll just review every now. There'll be a quiz at the end. Um, the book is not in chronological order, but it is. So, uh, the, so what I mean by that is I told you that, that Moses is actually wrote one of the Psalms, and so you would think, well, that would be Psalm 1, right? if it was in chronological order. But it's right about dead in the middle of the book. And David um, is scattered throughout as an author of many of the Psalms. So, but there is a chronology of themes, if you will. When we talk about that messianic kingdom, and I talked about the trajectory of that, when you begin in book one, largely speaking, the, the, the ideas, uh, the, the theme, the history of, of the first book of uh, Psalms is David, but it's David as he struggles before he becomes anointed king. Well, he's already been anointed king, but before he, Saul has died. Yeah, so it's a struggle with Saul as an enemy. The second one, he's come into the kingdom. Um, that's the dominant idea. He is the king, and there's, a, there's sort of a dialogue with the nations that's going on. And then the third book, it's the fall of Jerusalem, the loss. Of, it's the devastation that they go through. Then you have Some of the psalms are really dealing with kind of the exilic theme where they don't have their temple any longer and God has to be their only comfort. Uh, Their their place, if you will, in the world is God rather than Jerusalem. And it moves toward this more maturing and this this, then it finishes with praise. And so that, that movement we'll be talking about, we'll be showing that as we work our way through. Not doing all 150. You might have figured that out. Like Jay has, how long uh, before he's gone? Um, how's he going to get 150 psalms in here? Uh, not. I'm going to do about 30. That's my, that's my game plan right now. So we'll, co- we'll cover about 30 of them. They'll be kind of representative um, psalms as we work our way through. All right. So as we come to Psalm 1, and you're like, why did you start? If you're only doing 30, why start with Psalm 1? One, I'm going to do 1 and 2. I don't know where I'm going after 2. But one and two I'm doing for sure because they are the introduction to the Psalms. It, it's quite clear. They don't have an author listed. So they're, they're very much, and, they're, and they hang together very uniquely. Um, they, they, they're, the first one's kind of about um, the God's word, God's law, the Torah. And the second um, chapter is about Messiah. And you'll actually see that pairing popping up throughout the book of Psalms. Yeah? Too much? Are you, are you tracking with me okay? Yeah, it's not, it, it's not too complicated. We're going to jump right into Psalm 1, though. Here it is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So right off the bat, what do you know about this psalm? What's, what is it going to be about? And really, what is the whole book of Psalms going to be about in one sense? Well, it's going to be about the blessed man. 
Those who are blessed, those who, who are walking with the Lord and are enjoying his blessings. And it's kind of how, among other things, the book of Psalms will kind of explain what that looks like for us. How many of you would like to have a blessed life? Just, yeah? How many feel like it's just too late at this point? Uh, now, a lot of you are very young and you're looking forward to your, almost your entire life that, that, that lies before you. And, and you're thinking, how can, I hope you are. How can my life truly be blessed of God? Not, not blessed like Patrick Mahomes is blessed. That, not that kind of a blessing. If that's what God gives you, great. I mean, that, that, that's wonderful. But um, what does it mean to, to have a blessed life where I'm enjoying the fellowship of God and his work in my life and the fruit that's being born from that? That's, that's the big idea. Well, here, here, here's our thought. Be intentional about seeking the blessed life. Be intentional about seeking the blessed life. Now, interestingly, because it's poetry more than prose, it doesn't come right out in chapter 1 and tell us what to do. Instead, what it does is it holds forth like poetic imagery that we are to look at, and it's to win our hearts over, but it, but it indicates to us that we should be seeking after those things. So here, uh, here are the lessons of, uh, of Psalm 1. First of all, keep away from the influence of the ungodly. By the way, when it says, blessed is the man, ladies, it, it, that does not exclude women. That it, that's taking man in the use of humankind. So this is speaking to men and women. A blessed man avoids bad company. But not only does he avoid the bad company, uh, and it is possible for Christians to be in the company of unbelievers and sinners and so forth. Otherwise, we couldn't win them to Christ. But this is talking about falling completely under the influence of them, of letting their sinful notions and ideas and attitudes determine what our attitudes are going to be. Look at what's being said here. By the way, remember this is written, <laughs> this is how this is going to work through this whole series. You're going to get little tidbits as we go along and a lot of, lot of repeats. I'll repeat a lot of this as we go through. You'll go, oh yeah, I remember he said that once. Um, this is all written in something called Hebrew parallelism. How many of you already knew that? That's, that's kind of a well-known thing about uh, the Psalms is they're written in you don't, have rhyme, you don't have couplets with rhyming and all of that like, the, like you have in certain English poetry, but you have rhyming of ideas. So you have, usually it's an A line and a B line, but sometimes it's an A line, a B line, and a C line, but they're all in some ways similar to one another and parallel ideas, and that's how they're formed. Also, it, it just so happens that in Hebrew you have some kind of almost rhyming, like, I don't think there's very much true rhyming, but, but we call it assonance in, in English. Uh, we also, you've probably never heard this term, consonance, um, but where there's a repetition of sound, kind of like rubber baby buggy bumpers. Yeah? It's not really a rhyme. It's a tongue-twisting, you know, repetition of sounds. Listen to just the first, um, the, the first three words. It's uh, ha, um, ashri ha'ish asher. Do you, do you hear that repetition of, of sounds within that? Blessed is the man. And, and that's, what, that's kind of the typical sort of Hebrew way of, uh, of, of doing poetry. Look at the poetic pattern here, though, of what a blessed man avoids. Pay attention. He avoids the counsel of the wicked. 
He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. And he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, we could, you know, I could parse out and try to tell you the difference between, you know, what, what, it, what a wicked person is from what a sinner from a scoffer. But those are almost synonymous, pretty close to being synonymous. But I want you to notice the, the, the verbal idea there. What is it, what it, what it, it starts with him doing what? Not walking. Not walking, not standing, and not seated, right? Do you see the progression there? It's almost as though the psalmist is, is painting this picture of, you know, you're, go, you're going along and then you're, sta- you're stopping and, you're, and, you're just, and then all at once you're really settling in to what's going on. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 12? He said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by Testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is his good and acceptable and perfect. A blessed man does not allow himself to get progressively more and more entangled in what the world is pumping at them. By the way, how many feel just a little that the world is kind of pumping ideas at you all the time? Just a little? Huh? And don't and I know it's not just it's not just the young people, you know. People my age, we avoid TikTok because of the Chinese, but um <laughs> but, but we get on Instagram or or Facebook, you know, and we're you're scrolling and, and and I don't I don't even remember people using this term maybe ten years ago. I don't know how old the term is, but have you ever heard of influencers? Yeah. Right, we use that term now. Oh, they're an influencer. Did we say that 10 years ago? I don't remember that term 10 years ago. And all at once it's there. It's like you have all these people who create YouTube channels and so forth. And all they do is go up and drop a brand new iPhone off of a 10-story building or something like that. And they, and they pump out their opinion. And, uh, you know, the Kardashians and, and so on and so forth. You have all of those kinds of things. And some of it's kind of innocuous and really doesn't matter. Um, I watch a lot of golf influencers, uh, so I'll just, you know, confess that to you. But some of that stuff is nefarious. Some of it is just, if, if you just fill your mind with enough of it, you start adopting a certain cynicism, a pessimism, or or a twisted way of looking at the world, or a twisted way of understanding, you know, what is right and what is wrong. People are just inviting, as it were, through social media, all kinds of influences. Well, what was going on back then when this was written? What type of uh, early social media did they have back then? I guess, I guess they had taking a walk with somebody, seeing somebody you know, and stopping and standing, and hey, why don't, you, why don't we just sit down and have a cup of coffee together and chit-chat about what your ideas are. But, but the psalmist says, if you want to be blessed, you, you, you avoid that. You don't let that become this thing that, that just absolutely controls your thought life. Let instead God's word be your delight. So there's a contrast here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So here you have a mention of the, the word Torah. Yeah, you've heard the word Torah. It's a Hebrew understanding of, of instruction. Typically, uh, in its narrowest sense, it referred to the first five books 
of the, uh, of the Bible, uh, the books of Moses. That was counted as Torah. By first century Judaism, it, it had expanded to include more than just that. But in its most, yeah, most uh, literal, most specific way, it meant the first five books of, the Mo- of Moses. Who was supposed to meditate on it? Now, that's a trick question. You're like, that sounds like one of Jay's trick questions. I'm not going to answer that. But, you know, everybody, that's, that's, see, that's true and not, kind of not true to what I, so here's the funny thing. Yes, Psalm, Psalm 1's telling us, it's speaking to everyone, so everyone is blessed if they meditate on it day and night. And you could go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is a very common scripture that people go to about the commands of God and how we are to teach our children. When This is interesting. Notice the, the, the body positions. Sit, walk, and lie down. Isn't that weird? How that's almost parallel then to what you don't want to do in the company of the wicked. But the, I know, the Torah is not mentioned there specifically. But Here's the, here's the interesting thing. Do you know who was specifically told, you are to meditate on this? The kings. The kings of Israel. The anointed kings of Israel. Well, Joshua wasn't a king, but he was, he was taking over from Moses. Moses had passed. He had to take the children of Israel into the land. And God says to him, this book of the law, that's the Torah, shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night. Does that sound familiar? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Interestingly, back a book before, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is speaking about those that will be kings over Israel. Remember, the whole period of the judges has to fall in between But it's told to them that the kings of Israel are to copy for themselves, because they couldn't go down to the dollar store and buy a Bible. They, they, They were to copy out for themselves the Torah, and they were to meditate on it. They were to meditate. Now the psalmist is saying the blessed man is the one who delights himself in that. Who loves It's not just a chore. He delights himself in the, in the law of the Lord. And that's not just, I mean, yes, in its strictest sense, it's the first five books. But even the Jews expanded that to, to the, even including the Psalms later on. And for the Christian, it's, it's obviously not just the first five books that are instruction for us. It's the whole Bible. It's all 66 books. And it's not just if you were, as, as it were, the Bible unto itself, by itself. It is Christ in the scriptures through the Bible, right? It is, he is the word of God, the living word of God. That's not to say anything negative about the Bible itself, word for word, trust me. But I'm just saying, as we read the scriptures, we read it in light of Christ. He is the, the lens through which, the grid through which we look at the word. And through that word, we are blessed. Nature abhors a vacuum. You can't simply avoid the influences of the world around you unless you put something back in its place. Amen? Does that make sense? That's, isn't that your, a universal experience? That you can't, whatever you're trying to get rid of in your life, you always have to put something back. Back, I remember my grandfather years ago giving up smoking before there were nicotine patches, and all you could buy were um, lifesavers. And he ate a lot of lifesavers, I'm telling you. But yeah, 
We have to put something in its place. We can't just turn away from the world and evil and, and, and the counsel of the ungodly. We have to fill our mind and delight our hearts in the Word of God. Thirdly, you have to love the promise of abiding. And this, now, now the writer holds out this picture of what a blessed life looks like. He gives us a word picture. I use that term in uh, my ABF today, and I had to explain well, what a word picture is. But this will explain it. You, you won't have to have it explained. You'll just see it, all right? So uh, look at the imagery here in verse 3. He, this is the blessed man we're talking about, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Interesting, the word prosper there reminds you of Joshua 1.8 where, where Joshua was promised that if he meditated on it, that he would be prosperous. This is very similar to the imagery of John chapter 15 where he is the vine and we are the branches. It's just a different metaphor, but it gets across the same idea. Instead of you being a branch in the vine, you're a tree planted by streams of water. Can you get that picture? Are you a very, uh, some people are, I'm very audio, but are you a picture person? Can you see that? When, like if I say a tree planted by streams of water, do you kind of see that in your mind's eye? That's a, this, is a, this is a word picture that we are to take in and really think upon. That is how our life is supposed to be. This is verdant, lush, but strong, deeply rooted, firm, not moving, no disease, no, you know, no dead branches. When it's time for fruit bearing, that tree is just always going to put forth fruit. Why? Because it's been planted, planted by streams of water. And it's interesting, you know, when you first read this, you're probably tempted to picture a tree out, way out in the wild somewhere along one of these streams that you just run across out maybe in the mountains of Colorado or something like that. Yeah? Which is pretty. It's prettier than what I'm going to tell you, but the, but the word doesn't just mean stream. It also means a, an intentional channel of water that has been put, placed there to irrigate. So an irrigation ditch. The tree has been planted. It's intentional. It was put there and water was either already there because they'd already built the ditch or they built the ditch and brought the water to it. It has everything that it needs for life. The blessed life of the, of the believer is a, an abiding kind of life. And yes, I'm stealing that from John 15, not from Psalm 1, but the idea is there. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Do you see how in both illustrations, whether it's planted um, by, by waters or whether you're the branch in the vine, there's this solidity, this firmness, this abiding. You're not being moved. And that's going to function, I mean, that's going to be kind of the main idea here is that, you, that not only is it green and fruit-bearing, but it won't be moved. There's a sort of spiritual life principle, life prosperity principle here. Not prosperity like it, that gets thrown around in the health, wealth kind of movement, not at all, but there's a prosperity of fruitfulness for the kingdom of God for the person who delights himself in the law of the Lord 
and is not letting himself be constantly drugged down and brought into the conformity with how the world sees things. If you're a Christian and all you ever do is just constantly, 24-7, fill your mind with the things of this world, and, and I tell you what, we're all getting more and more that way. It's like we can't shut it off. But if that's all you ever do, that's all you're ever putting in there, you are not going to be fruit-bearing. I mean, I can pretty well guarantee that, that, that your life is, is going to be void of real spiritual fruit unless you're putting in what God says we're to delight ourselves in. We need that. We need to be intentional about that. If you want a blessed life as a believer, are you in the Word? Are you taking part in, in Bible studies, in what cluster groups with other Christians, whatever it might be? Are you taking advantage of every opportunity to offset that constant droning sound of the world that is just pumping itself at us 24-7. We have two choices there, it seems like, to me, that are put out there before us. But if that's not enough to motivate you, if the good word picture doesn't motivate you, there's the flip side, right? And that's learn from the outcome of the wicked. What does it say here? Let this Grab hold of this image the same way you grabbed hold of the other way. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. You remember the other one was about being solid and stationary and abiding. Drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Brothers and sisters, this is a consistent image in the scripture from beginning to end. You can go back to the prophets. You can go to Jeremiah. He uses this imagery Precisely the same imagery. John the Baptist. If this sounded familiar to you about the chaff, John the Baptist said that about the the leaders and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were coming out to be baptized. And he warned them. He warned them as this very thing. We see this in the parables that Jesus used, which are very, very similar um, to this. What is the imagery of chaff? Um, I'm uh, I'm not a farmer. So I don't really deal with this, and I could not explain to you how modern combine works, but I've been preaching for quite a while, so I kind of understand the chaff thing, right? In, in the olden times, they didn't have the combine. They took the wheat after they'd cut it, and they brought it in, and then they beat it. They had this wooden thing that they, you know, kind of looked like something you'd use in warfare, and they just, they just beat the grain, and what would happen is that not, uh, not the good part of the grain, you know, that we, that we get rid of for white flour, but I'm talking about the, the chaff. That was that little, almost leaf-like, really light, dry, barely there kind of outer bit. And they would beat it until that freed itself from the grain. And then they would take the winnowing fork. Yeah, you've read that in Scripture, the winnowing fork. And a big, big old fork, you know, and they and they lift it, and they throw it in the air, and, and chaff is so light that even a, a modest breeze would be sufficient to just blow it away, and the good grain would fall down below, and the two would be separated from one another. Think of the parable of the sheep and the goats. What happens? They're separated. What happened in the parable of the weeds that were sown in the good man's field? you remember that? They went in and sowed weeds in his field overnight. An enemy did that, and, and, and they're like, what do we do, Lord? And he's like, well, let it grow. L- wait till the harvest. When the harvest comes, then we'll cut the weeds down, and we'll throw them into the fire, and then we'll bring the grain into the barn. So this is the constant idea of Scripture. And dear ones, I am persuaded of much better concerning you, so I want you to, I want you to get the pictures in your head 
if, you, if you're walking with Christ, I don't want you to be, you know, made uncertain about your salvation. I will say this. You're alive because you're hearing this. You're breathing. You're hearing this. So you have the opportunity. If you hear this and you realize that you are chaff, well, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to know one's own condition because the parable, like the weeds, and, and, and even what we're told here is, is that there are people in the midst of those who call themselves believers who are not actually believers. And the day of judgment will bring that forth. At that point, it will be made clear whether the person was just making a, a false profession with their lips or whether they genuinely had trusted in the Lord. Do you know today... Christian, or those who call themselves, do you know that you've turned to Christ? Do you know that you've turned away from your old life and repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ? Is your life showing that? Are you starting to see fruit? Now, look, a genuine Christian can go, go through dry spells in his or her life. That's, that's real, and that's, we know that to be true. And a genuine Christian can fall into a time of unrepentant sin, which is scary. But we should not make that as an excuse. In fact, and it, it can just as easily prove that the person isn't actually a Christian at all. So we don't make an excuse by, by, by turning to those things. Instead, if we look at these images and it frightens us and we look at that chaff, Spurgeon once had a, a pang of conscience where he worried that he was one of those one of those unproductive branches that was cast into the fire. Spurgeon. Eh? So if, if this creates in you some un, unsettling thought, go to the Lord. Deal with it. Talk to him about it. And repent. Finally, abide in Christ. And you're thinking, where is he getting that from? Abide in Christ. How, what kind of twisting of the scripture is this man doing? All right, I'm going to make my case here for why I think I can bring this point, um, and you'll, you'll, you'll understand in the by and by here. But um, I've treated Psalm 1 from the standpoint kind of a, of the surface reading of it, not wrong, which is this is what a blessed life looks. This is how we ought to be if we are pursuing the blessed life. And I stand by that. Everything I've said up till now, yeah, I think it's true. However, that's one layer but there's really two layers to this. I want to offer this, by the way. Somebody the other day asked me a question out of Isaiah, and I didn't have a chance to really, get, really respond you know, thoughtfully. But there are many things in Scripture where there is that one layer, which is kind of the obvious. But then, going back to what Garrett said last week about Christ being at the heart of the Scripture, being the central theme, there's this other layer where the theme of Christ is running on through. And you have to pick that out and see it. Here's the thing. Psalm 1 and 2 are a unit. You remember me saying that earlier? And one of the reasons we know that is something called an inclusio, which you don't need to remember. But I always talk about it as bookends. Look at Psalm 1.1. Psalm 1.1 says, blessed is the man. Yes? The end of Psalm 2, what's the last, what are the last words of, of verse 2? Blessed are those who put their trust in him. And that's Messiah. It's very clear when we get to Psalm 2. I don't want to 
you know, prejudice it by too much because I'm going to preach on it next week. But Psalm 2 is clearly, pointedly about Messiah. And so Psalm 1 begins, blessed is the man. Psalm 2 about the Messiah ends, blessed is the one who puts their trust in him. You tracking? Okay. Let me take you back to something else I said. Who was explicitly commanded by God to meditate? You didn't know it earlier, you know it now. Who explicitly was told, you need to write this thing down and you need to meditate on it, buddy? The king. Yeah, the king. Who is the king? That's the Messiah, right? Every king was Messiah in one sense because they were all anointed as a king, you know, a son of David. Now, how many of the the kings lived up to that? How many kings perfectly lived out what it means in Psalm 1 to be a blessed man? How many of them? Yeah, big zero. David tried, fell on his face many times, and, and God redeemed him anyway, but he was not the perfection of what is set forth in Psalm 1. Who is the ultimate king? Who's the ultimate? Yes, Christ. Christ Jesus, Christ, the Messiah. He is that king who is the blessed man, the one in whom we have put our trust, the one in whom ultimately we abide. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm jumping a, ba- a bit to connect these things together as I am, but I think it's legitimate. And the other thing is that when you read this, not only does it call our minds to this Messiah in whom we are blessed if we trust, but, th- but when you read it, Aren't you convicted of how, how short you fall of these things? Like if I just left it at a certain point and I were to say to you, okay, you got the message today, you want to bless life, you go do that. Get her done. Right? Quit messing around, guys. Just get her done and then you're going to be blessed. I think you'd go home discouraged. Because you're thinking, I've been trying. And I haven't been succeeding very well, but that's, that's, that's what I want. Look at what Jesus said in John 15 again. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. We're not going to get where we want to go simply by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and trying really, really hard to delight ourselves in the law of the Lord and trying really, really hard to avoid bad company. Remember that tree? I kind of intoned the word planted. It wasn't a volunteer tree out on a wild stream somewhere. It was planted. Matthew 15 talks about every tree that my father has not planted will be uprooted. We don't get where we're going by our own effort. We have to be the planted tree to whom all resources have been brought. They've been dug into the ground and they've been brought right to our roots and that is in Christ. That, is, that comes to the one who abides. So, believer, be intentional by all means. Be intentional. Avoid conformity to the world, the wicked, the sinner. Don't let yourself get you know, in that progressive downward spiral where you're, you're walking and then you're standing. And you're, no. Avoid, 
Delight yourself in the word of God. Delight yourself in Christ Jesus who will, who will furnish you with everything. And through him you will bear fruit in his name. Unbeliever, I'd like to just uh, close really quickly talking to you if there is someone that doesn't know the Lord today. Uh, I once heard, it was Peter Hitchens, if you'd like to know the exact name. Peter Hitchens was, uh, is, was, his brother died, Christopher Hitchens, who was a great atheist, very renowned atheist. And, and Peter was kind of tracking in the same way in his life. He, he was uh, at least an agnostic, probably an atheist. Both of them very intellectual, you'll understand. And his his conversion, his testimony of coming to Christ started with him in, a, um, in one of those cathedrals in Europe, and there was an altarpiece, you've heard of those, you know, these artistic background images that were painted back in the Middle Ages uh, and, and the Renaissance, and it was the, it was the final judgment, that was the theme. And he was standing there, kind of like, it was like a tour, he was just a tourist, and he was, he's looking at this, he's an atheist, and there's Christ depicted and there's the separating of the sheep and the goats. And looking at that, seeing that picture, struck him. Here's this great intellectual. And a picture done by some you know, medieval artist just went to his heart. He ends up becoming a Christian. So I'm going to give you a picture. It's not going to be the final judgment. Uh, I, I don't have that to throw up here, you know, uh, to show you. I'm just going to give you a word picture. And here it is. You can have a life where you are planted by streams of living water. Where God brings you everything necessary for a life. And you are part of his, his people and where there's fruit. Or there's another image and that is chaff. Picture it in your mind. It's just the lightest, airiest substance. It's dry, brown, desiccated. It's hardly there. It would hardly measure if you put it on a scale. And the wind comes and it blows it away. It does not, it does not, it doesn't even come close to standing. Forget about being rooted. It, it, I mean, it, it, grain that's detached looks solid compared to it. It's just blown away and it's gone. And the Bible says that is the way of the wicked. That is the way of the sinner. Apart from Christ, apart from that, that life that comes through him, that is you. You will not stand on the day of judgment. You will be blown away and you will perish eternally. You'll be lost. Or you can be a tree planted by water. It says if it, of the wicked that they will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. The Bible gives us a picture of the congregation of the righteous. It's in the book of Revelation. And it depicts the people in heaven who have come through Christ to God and they are in white robes and they're standing before the throne and they're giving glory to God. And, and, and when John wants to know who they are, well, it's, it's those that have washed themselves in the blood of the Lamb. They've been cleansed through trusting in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one who died on a cross and rose on the third day. If you repent, if you put your trust in him, you will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. Let's pray. 
Father, we, we just pray that as we pursue this book of, of Psalms, that it would be our delight, along with your whole word, lo, along with the first five books of Moses, all the way through the other uh, 60, 61 that I guess are, would be left over after that. Uh, Father, let us, let, us, let us be a people planted and, and drinking in that life-giving message especially as we see it through the lens of Christ, our Messiah, who died and rose again. We, we pray, Lord, that we would be fruit-bearing through our connection with him and that our life would be blessed. And Lord, I just pray that you'd bless someone today that, that has not known you, that's never bent the knee to you, that, that's such a one seeing that there is this, 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 this person given for them. Maybe seeing it in a new light, coming at it from the Psalms instead of from the New Testament. I don't know, Lord, but that, that you would bless such a one and cause them to see your truth and turn to you and be saved. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.